1: Welcome to RN Summer and the best of the minefield, at least that's what we think it is. I've, I've always been excluded from the meetings where we decide these things, so I, I, I'm a little bit in the dark as to how they got here and even what's coming up at the time. <laughs> Ed well, Ali is my name, Scott Stevens is my co-host as we try throughout the year to navigate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life, and then it's summer we basically look back and see how we did with all that. Um <laughs> Scott, welcome. Welcome Thank you.
0: Thank you. I I don't know. As you're listening to this, I'm at a beach someplace, I'm sure. Decidedly, assiduously not watching cricket. Um, And I am deciding not to go to (laughs)
1: Queensland, even though I'm now allowed. Or at least I assume so. There may have been an outbreak that I didn't know about as I was saying this, but who knows? It's been that kind of year, though. Hasn't
0: it, it has indeed. And look, Willie, one of the reasons we don't include you in the decisions about what our best shows are of the year is we found it really difficult to get you to remember what we talked about two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely right. I would just say, what did we do last week? Run that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And that is, that is fair. This, <laughs> has been, this has been a nuts year. And I would say, Willie, that one of the things that this year really placed some severe challenges on our plan uh, was everything was happening, and then as soon as we talked about it, it went out of date almost immediately. And yeah. so, in thinking about some of these summer broadcasts, we actually th- had to think very, very carefully about well, what is going to take so much recontextualizing that it almost takes the sting or it takes, yeah. the, it takes the air out of the topic itself. It's so, not worth doing, yeah. Exactly right. So one of the things that we wanted to do for our first two weeks of our summer broadcast is to revisit a topic that we kept coming back to again and again as circumstances permitted us. And that was the idea of deadly sins, or as I like to refer to them, drawing from the philosopher Michel de Montaigne, Ordinary vices, in other words, those characteristics, those qualities of, uh, and those habits of daily life that maybe don't seem pernicious, that don't seem Mm. deadly or dangerous to ourselves, to others or to the soul, but nonetheless are very much part of the way we live. And for me, Walid, one of the things that distinguishes these ordinary vices is, yes, they might do damage for us. Yes, they might offend a kind of Kantian law but the main thing about them is the way that they damage the relationships around us. Uh, so, it was a great series,
1: and we started with Pride.
0: Here it is. We promised, and this is one of those promises that we're actually going to keep this year. I like that we call it
1: a promise when promised. we're doing it, because then it sounds like we've kept it from us. When we're not doing it, it was like, oh, it was an
0: idea, yeah. Call it what you like. If you want to think about this series in a more theological register, maybe you could call them cardinal sins or or deadly sins. If you want to think about this in a more recognizable Uh, moral register that, say, stems from Montaigne instead of Immanuel Kant or instead of Thomas Aquinas. Maybe we could call it ordinary vices. Certain habits, dispositions, attitudes, characteristics, ways of patterns of life that we get up to that are peculiarly Corrosive, not just to the soul, but also to our relationships with others within a common civil or moral or political community. But I think what also makes these deadly sins or these ordinary vices so corrosive is that in a very real way in our time, we've become peculiarly inured to them. We don't maybe see them as vicious as they in fact are. The the one that we're doing today, I think really it's probably the most complex of all of them. And it's complex because for Immanuel Kant and for Thomas Aquinas, so in both the moral and the theological registers, this vice or this characteristic or disposition or attitude is the worst of them all, and this is pride. So Thomas Aquinas, for instance, following St. Augustine before him, said that pride was in fact the original sin in the garden. This this elevating of the human self above the command of its creator, this proud self-conceit that then reached out and took what it was not entitled to, that that is, in fact, the original sin. For Immanuel Kant, I think in a very different, but also I think in a fairly important way, pride is a peculiar affront or a peculiar offense to the obligation to treat Others with dignity, with a capital D, with respect with capital R, to give them what is in fact owed to them. So for both for in both sort of moral and theological registers, there is something peculiarly wrong with pride. Let me just put this question though to you, Walid. In both instances, isn't it the case that pride only becomes vicious when it is counterposed, when it's put up against, a big theological or big moral claim, capital D, Dignity, or capital G, God. As soon as you no longer have that big countervailing claim, this thing that owes, that is owed your obligation, that is owed your fealty, pride, I wondered, no longer is quite as problematic as mm. it was before. Is that an interesting way of kicking off the discussion? Yeah,
1: but you've taken my point.
0: Oh, and right. I don't know what to do.
1: I think you're right. And I think... This is clearest, I think, in the theological case because the very essence of pride is that it's making a god of oneself, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's failing to recognize one's position in the cosmos in relation to that which is supreme, right? So, yes, but I also think in some ways that needs to be teased out, mm. a touch, because I wonder if pride, uh, the English word pride, is a bit flat yep. and captures a bit much. So, for example, so I, I'm doing this only because I'm a tiny bit familiar with it from the Islamic context, but there is a difference in Arabic between Izzah, which is often translated as pride, and kibr, which is also translated as pride. And Izzah is really this notion, it's coupled with notions of honour hmm. and power hmm. and dignity in a sense, but it is to do with the way in which you comport yourself the way in which you, do you behave with honor are you a people of honor etc kibber is more even though is is sometimes used in this way as well but kibber is more to do with arrogance and conceit and this idea of superiority or condescension towards another and i don't know that that nuance is captured when we talk about pride in English. It might be within the Christian tradition. I don't know. You'd be a better placed than me to answer that question. But I think it's a really important distinction because I think it's very easy. I think two things follow from what you have said. One is that in the absence of something greater than oneself, pride ceases to be a problem. Right? Why wouldn't you be proud? But also that to say pride is a problem can very quickly lead, in certain cultural imaginations anyway, to a sense of uselessness, mm-hmm. um, a kind of sense that one is – uselessness is right, not the right word – worthlessness, such that you become almost in a perverse way freed of any obligation because right. who are you anyway? I think it's a really important distinction to try to to hold together. And maybe that's why we see what we see. Uh, you know, it's in in our current age where there are no superior beings, you could argue <laughs> – and um, particularly as things become more and more individualistic, nothing becomes superior to the individual. And so you get this thing, don't you? You get people thinking they're worthless and you get people um, being incredibly arrogant. And I'm aware that those things have always existed as long as human beings have, but they do seem amplified at the moment. And I wonder if what you've identified about the absence of anything greater than oneself is really the the root of that phenomenon.
0: Can I pick up – I'm really glad you've taken it in this direction. Can I just stick with the notion of honour? Because I think there is something kind of important here that we really need to identify. Uh, Again, I'm probably more familiar with this in sort of the Latin and Greco-Roman culture than I am within Arabic culture. But honour within the Greco-Roman political and social milieu It's not just comportment. It's not just the way in which one bears oneself or the dignified way in which one carries oneself or behaves towards others. But honor cannot be gained by oneself. I can't reach out and grab honor. Honor has to be conferred by others, which means that honor is also something that can be taken away when I behave in a manner that is disrespectful or dishonorable. So I assume, I assume within Arabic culture as well, that that notion of honor which is accorded and honor which is taken away, that that's also operative within.
1: Yeah, because the notion of respect is kind of bound up. That's right. Which, yes, you touched. I think you gave it a capital R, so you definitely mentioned it. Um, Yeah, I think that's true. But at the same time, and now I'm kind of, this is very much, I could be wrong about this, but at the same time, I think that it's something that you can lose through your conduct. Perhaps even irrespective of whether or not so in, other people Okay, so in it.
0: your own eyes. You can become
1: dishonorable in your own eyes. Or perhaps in God's eyes, in which case you, you still then – you need something to refer to, don't you? You need some greater thing to refer to because there is this notion of those who are held in esteem in the eyes of human beings but not in the eyes of God and the reverse being true.
0: Let me give this a little Kantian inflection just to sort of fill out the idea of pride because I I don't think I want to move beyond the idea of pride too much. I I think this idea of self-esteem and of honorability or of almost a kind of self-respect, I think that all these things are germane. I think all these things are important and internal to the notion of pride. But I think in the way that Immanuel Kant teases out two of the perversions of pride, I think it's really, really helpful here. He has, on the one hand, this idea of pride or arrogantia, of a kind of self-conceit. So, this is a refusal to be modest in the way that I demand respect of others. So, it is the natural form in some way. Kant's been very Aristotelian here. It's a natural form of the longing, the desire for honor, of self-respect, of people to regard me well, but it's a kind of immodesty about it. So, I demand it from others, but that direction is only ever one way. I want mm. people to be preoccupied, if the, if you like, in the way that they think about me, in the proper accordance of respect that they show me. But then there's that other canting idea that is more pervasive. I think it's particularly pervasive in our time, and that's the idea of pride as superbia, as a kind of as a vaunting of oneself and an arrogance that demands what I refuse to accord others. So I Hmm. demand respect, but I refuse to give that respect in turn. This, if you like, is the pride of the one way mirror. I want to be gazed at, but I don't want to see others, if you like, with the eyes of grace, as Iris Murdoch would put it. So pride in order to be proud, in the Kantian register is to be characterized by a degree of immunity from the countervailing moral demands of others. And I think that is... That's something I don't think I want to trade away too quickly.
1: No, I think that's really important because that that's really the thing that opens the door to all kinds of vast depressions. Uh, this is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on the radio on RN. You might be doing that right now. Thank you very much for doing so. But you can also listen to us anytime you like on the ABC Listen app. Uh, the show also exists as a podcast which has extra content because we keep banging on after the final siren has gone off. Teaser reference, Scott won't understand. Um, so you can subscribe to our podcast wherever it is that you do such things. Scott, we have a guest. She's been waiting very patiently while we've been banging on to ourselves, and I'm
0: waiting to be scattered by her insights. Are you ready? Yes, indeed. Susie Kilmister is lecturer in philosophy at Monash University. She's the author of a fabulous new book called Contours of Dignity. Susie, thank you so much for joining us on the minefield.
2: Thanks for having me. So
0: let's let's begin. Since So much of your recent work has been, or not just recent work, dear God, for the last decade, you've been thinking and writing and working very productively on the topic of dignity. Let's begin with, I think, capital P, Pride, but without the negative connotations. So, I mean, while he'd made reference to this before, we know, don't we, what it looks like when an oppressed people or an oppressed class or an oppressed gender is left almost entirely Without a sense of pride, without the necessary degree of self-esteem that's required to hold oneself to a particular moral standard, or even simply to offer others a kind of countervailing defiance in the face of their illicit forms of pride. Is it proper, is it right to think about pride solely in a kind of negative register, or is pride the precondition to the realization of personal dignity?
2: So I think there's definitely positive elements uh, to pride, though as you've noted, it can go in very bad directions. Particularly if we're thinking about political communities and the ways in which pride can get tied up in oppression. But I think if we think about pride in terms of something like self-esteem or self-respect, the way in which we evaluate ourselves, then some uh, degree of pride I think is incredibly important, and particularly important for people who have certain kinds of social identities that are perhaps denigrated within their political community. Where our kind of sense of self-esteem might might take a bit of a battering, I guess, in the public domain, that to find things that we can take pride in, I think, is a re- either individually or collectively, um, can be incredibly important for well-being. So that idea of proving one's worth or showing one's worth or standing up for one's worth I think is, is an element of pride that can be incredibly beneficial. Um, the difficulty of course is when people who already have a fair amount of social power already are held in high esteem hold on to in a sense that position and, and take themselves to be worthy of that position and that kind of form of pride I think um, can actually end up exacerbating inequalities rather than kind of countering them. So I think the kind of social position is really important. Pride is a useful corrective I think for people who are held in a kind of lower position in society but exacerbates inequality when it's being enacted by people in the higher positions of power. Can I just
0: yeah. take... So, so, I'm so sorry, Willie. You, you're going to like this, so I'm not going <laughs> to apologise too much. Can I just say, though, a moral gesture that I suspect Kant would have found morally objectionable but is, for me, the quintessential demonstration of a kind of countervailing or transitional pride would be Muhammad Ali's, I mean, really immodest, let's let's call it straight, immodest displays of contempt for his opponents, of pride for those who have fallen at his feet. And, and, and And yet there was something about that that wasn't vicious, Was it? There's a countervailing character to this, but also there's a representative character. There's a demonstration that the pride, the illicit forms of cultural, political, class pride to which we have been subject and to which we have been enslaved is something I no longer regard. I no longer Take it seriously. I am no longer affected by it. And here's my demonstration that I am now immune to your displays of pride. There is something about that that's virtuous, is there not?
2: I think there probably is. Um, But I think uh, one thing to bear in mind with the Muhammad Ali example is, um, in a sense, what the pride is directed at. Um, So there's the, I guess, content of the pride and also the display or exhibition of the pride. And these, I think, can both be really important in thinking about um, when pride can be morally beneficial or when it can be damaging. So in terms of thinking about what it is that Muhammad Ali is expressing pride about, um, the philosopher Stephen Darwall draws this really useful distinction um, between what he calls appraisal respect and recognition respect. And if we think about pride as being tied up in respect, this can be a a really useful way to think about it, where appraisal respect is a kind of evaluation of ourselves if it's directed at ourselves, of how good we are according to some kind of metric. So we might have um, a or respect for ourselves as a tennis player or a boxer or a gardener or a philosopher or whatever it is. And it's just a kind of evaluation of, of how good um, we are in that dimension. Whereas recognition respect is about um treating something in accordance with the kind of thing that it is. So we offer, say, recognition respect to a judge by standing when they walk into a room. It's a kind of demonstration that we acknowledge their position and how they ought to be treated accordingly. Now, if we kind of put that into the register of pride, I think we could see what Muhammad Ali was doing as... um Instantiating quite a high level of appraisal respect for his boxing (laughs) abilities. Um, And I think if we're thinking about pride in our abilities to do a certain kind of thing, there's nothing particularly problematic about that. It can be an incredibly good motivator um, to recognise that we're good at something, to strive to be good at something, to take pride in it when we we have done well. If we think about the phrase to take pride in one's work, it's really important to have that as a kind of motivator um, and to try to achieve that. Um, But there's a real difference between that and thinking that we as a kind of person ought to be treated in a different kind of way to others, Um, which comes back to something you said before about the kind of asymmetry of pride being a problem. If I think I ought to be treated in respect, but I don't want to um, issue that kind of respect to someone else. So there's a real difference between saying, I'm really good at this, then we might think about how that's expressed and whether certain expressions of that might be problematic. Um, I think there's other kind of sports people we might look at and think, it's fair enough to say you're very good at this, but maybe the way you're expressing that um, is a little problematic, a little humility would be um, called for. But that's very different from saying, I would deserve to be treated in this certain kind of way, but other people don't. But, um, but in, in the example of Muhammad Ali, or even I'd
0: say Adam Good's right, Waleed, mm-hmm. I mean, what's going on there isn't just self-appraisal, but there's also a demand, a command for recognition, respect, in the same way that a judge might order someone to stand up. When somebody walks in the room, there is a moral claim. You will respect me by God, uh, which isn't purely narcissistic, I don't think. There's something well, no, else going Because they're
1: depersonalized. On that's yes, what's that's happening right.
0: there, right? So the judge example is a really interesting one to think about
1: because, of course, in most places in um, sort of the common law tradition, judges wear wigs and robes and there are exceptions to that. But there's kind of a – there's a rationale for that, which is to do with the invisibility of the person, right? That mm. it becomes the embodiment of the... It's not the judge that you're standing up for, the person of the judge. It's the office of the judge, the institution of the law. It's that sort of thing. The Adam Goods thing, I think, is similar. Adam Goods is not standing up demanding respect for himself in or his not capacity. Or just, not just
2: himself, mm. perhaps. I a would say
1: of... not for himself at all. No, as wow. a, well, maybe we're saying the same mm. thing with different words, but I, I don't... I don't think he's saying I'm Adam Goods, and you'd better respect mm. that. I think what he's saying is anyone in my position, like I, I represent a kind of idea of pe- of people, certain people, certain positions, and that's what should be accorded respect, and it shouldn't be denied to someone. Mm just because they happen to be me.
2: I think that sounds really similar. I was thinking when we were talking about the Adam Goods example and why I was saying it's not just about the role, that it might be something individual. But I think I do agree with you. I was thinking about the civil rights demonstrations in the US where the people were wearing the billboard saying, I am a man, right? This, there's something personal about that. It is, mm. it is about me standing here in front of you, but it's also about, I think, um, this symmetry, right? It's, it's I also... I'm a man, or a woman, I suppose, yeah. um, and, and therefore demand respect, not because of the particular individual that I am, but just because mm. everyone deserves to be treated I'm, in a I'm here not way. in my
1: capacity as me, but in yeah. my capacity as, as an a instantiation of a whole lot of other... Yeah, but here's the... It, hmm. Where you draw this distinction between the pride of the dominant and the pride mm. of the oppressed, shall we say, there is a real danger there, isn't there? Mm. Brilliant. Because there comes a point at which unless you really identify what's different so that these are actually different concepts, Mm -hmm. I think there's a real risk in making a virtue of a vice simply because of one's social positioning, right, which is, I think, how you end up observing things like the oppressor-oppressed cycle, Mm -hmm. right? Those who are oppressed um, take on what would be a vice in the hands of the oppressor and then eventually they might rise but now they've embodied that vice... Mm -hmm which we were prepared to overlook or perhaps even laud in their subservient position, and now they'll start the next cycle of oppression. In other words, there have to be certain kind of moral categories that apply irrespective of social positioning and can't merely be the whim of power relations or, or political positioning.
2: Yeah, I think if we think of what we might call appropriate pride as a demand to be treated as an equal, this might get around some of that, right? So if the idea is that what in order to have an appropriate level of self-respect in order to be able to um, be able to look each other in the eye in a, in a political and social community, uh, we need to be accorded certain amounts of respect, then that demand to be treated as an equal, I think, is an appropriate response to oppression. And it might look an awful lot like pride, maybe that's one way of putting it. It will be making the same kind of claims that someone who's in a position of power might make using the same words, the same kind of gestures. Mm-hmm. But because it's a demand to be kind of lifted up to the position of equal, that's what makes it Um, a virtue, not a vice, whereas if someone's already in a position of authority, their exhibitions of pride in some sense can't be claims to be treated as an equal. But what if
1: it's a claim to dismiss you as you dismiss me?
2: Mm, um, I guess if it's in the process of trying to be seen as an equal. We might think of it as taking someone else down a peg, right? If we think of that as what Muhammad Ali was doing, if we take his, um, the attitude that he was displaying as not just a kind of, I'm good at boxing, but as a broader social commentary, that that attempt to, in some sense, downplay someone else's standing... Um, in order to, to level the playing field. I might be a little more open to the idea that that could be. I
1: know you're more open okay. to it. My but question I, uh, is, is that not a very dangerous... I
2: think it is dangerous. It can be dangerous because I think we're not very good... People in general aren't very good judges of when we're in fact being treated as equals. So when you were talking about the oppressor oppressed cycle and this related problem of people becoming blind to their own privilege and so if they start to be treated differently experiencing this, sincerely experiencing this as a kind of put down and as being treated as lesser. Mm. Um, And so yes, if we get these kind of public habits of certain people saying and doing certain things and then we say, well, that's okay, um, and other people experience themselves as being denigrated and so want to react in the same kind of ways, I think that, yeah, it, it is a bit of a dangerous tendency because of our inability, I think, to necessarily accurately track our own social position and our own kind of privilege.
1: I wonder if we need... That's why we need a word other than pride. Mm. Scott, stop, stop
0: talking. We don't, don't have time. <laughs> yes. uh. I was just about to say, all of this is fodder for the podcast, so oh. let's get there.
2: <laughs>
1: looks like I have my orders. We are about to go off to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that little taste of our discussion on Pride, that little taste, of course, of our Ordinary Vices series. You'll hear a bit more of that over summer as we uh, give you the best of the minefield. Susie Kilmister was our guest for that one, lecturer in philosophy at Monash University. She's the author of a book called Contours of Dignity, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, the best of The Minefield for 2020. And we'll see you next week when we scrounge up another one.
0: I think we've really strayed into quite possibly the most productive territory that we could be exploring. Can I, can I draw someone like James Baldwin into this? Because I think he's really, really helpful at this point. Baldwin was kind of famously ambivalent about, about Muhammad Ali in, in all sorts of ways. Not because he didn't like the displays of countervailing pride but he thought that they didn't produce the context that they were meant to produce. So he uses this example, and I, I find the example amazingly helpful. He says, a student cannot be taught by a teacher who holds that student in contempt. So his, his idea is the purpose of any display of countervailing pride. So I would even say, you know, I am a man. I am someone who is owed recognition by virtue of my belonging to this political community, by virtue, even if we don't want to say by virtue of my being a person, if we want to sort of, you know, cast dignity as a kind of inalienable quality of human being as such. But if we simply say that by virtue of my being in this political community, I am owed a voice, I am owed your recognition. The purpose of that claim is to create the sufficient conditions for there to be something like moral communication between these two parties. And here, I think, is where James Baldwin's diagnosis of what happens when pride, those kind of countervailing assertions of pride, go too far, that they have the effect of lowering the very person to whom you are inviting into something like democratic conversation. What happens when you lower them is they can't hear you because they don't think you have anything to then teach them. And I think here's where Kant's idea of what pride does is it uses the lowering of the other as a means to my self-glorification, as a means to my elevation. It therefore it thereby reduces someone To a means to my end, which anybody who knows anything about Kantian philosophy, that is the great sort of philosophical or moral sin within Kant's system, reducing somebody else to a means to my glorification. So I think if if we think about these displays of countervailing pride or of of self-esteem, As creating conditions within which people can meet as equals, then doesn't that, I think, maybe help us see a way beyond or without tipping over into this kind of oppressor, oppressed cycle that you've both been talking about?
2: Um, I think there's something to that, but I'm just going to play devil's advocate a little bit. People are going to think I'm, I'm all in favour of arrogance and displays of, of superiority. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think there's something that's worth drawing attention to, which is um, who the audience is meant to be for these kinds of displays. Because you put it in terms of it's not very helpful to have these displays of superiority if we're trying to engage in some kind of democratic conversation. But I think sometimes these displays aren't intended for that, and they might have a purpose beyond that, which is to, in a sense, create uh, uh, an environment Environment in which people who are oppressed talk to one another are communicating to one another about the horrors of their oppressor. Um, and so the if the target audience is fellow members of the oppressed group, I think these kinds of displays can be this kind of useful way of bolstering up a collective sense of pride. And, and part of that has to be in, sometimes, potentially, a refusal to, in a sense, engage with the oppressor on terms of an equal. So I think this idea of there being at least sometimes occasion on which these displays of, of dominance or superiority have this different kind of purpose, a kind of in-group building of collective pride an acknowledgement of um, the inappropriateness of the ways that have been treated in the past, that it might, at least sometimes, right, have some productive uh, kind of pathway. Though I acknowledge that, again, we're not very good judges of when we're in those kinds of situations. And so, um, in a sense, licensing that kind of behaviour can potentially lead it to being used in, in situations where it's not appropriate. I just
1: wonder how easy to- is to flick the switch. Mm. So, like, at what point do you say, well, no, no this is just for internal consumption, it's like it serves a particular civic function within, mm. but once we're engaging externally, then that's not appropriate, yeah? Or do you inculcate a particular ethos mm. and then that just becomes who you are and you start to express that? I mean, we, we've, we've spoken about Muhammad Ali, but I actually think a person that we might have been better to think about might have been a Malcolm X mm. because he undergoes this transformation, where clearly he understands why he went through the whole Nation of Islam thing and all that, but he comes out the other side and he starts to try to say, no, no, I've got to see white people as my brothers and I've got to, you know, work with them and this sort of thing. Um, I don't think he's, I think he understands himself. He, he forgives himself for what he's done in the past, but he doesn't think that's the right way to go about it because he ends up adopting a different sort of a model. Now, people might like or not like the model he ends up adopting, but the fact that he's gone through that transformation is the thing that's interesting about mm. it. Right?
2: But I wonder how much getting to the end point requires having gone through that transformation, right, that, that it is in fact a process. We might say that the, we really shouldn't see these kinds of... Um, displays of dominance or whatever it is, as a good end point. But in terms of being able to get to a position where people have been oppressed, they're able to take that kind of higher ground, see their oppressors as equals, Mm. might require a kind of bolstering that that looks a lot like... They they
1: have (laughs) to talk about them as lesser for a bit (laughs) until they understand, until they believe that they're equal. Like, they're talking Mm. themselves into equality by... Talking about the other people. It might
2: depend what we mean by talking about the others as lesser, I suppose. Um, If we're talking about kind of basic moral worth, I'd be very nervous (laughs) about... that. that's often the expression it takes, right? Yeah, but sometimes I think it can take a kind of... moral evaluation, right? Those people are worse than us because look at the kind of things that they do. Um, And that kind of thing, I think, might have more of a place of we're better than them because we don't do those kinds of things, because that might help you get a grip on when to kind of stop, right? Or or see when you might be turning into the very thing that you're being contemptuous of, right? So if the contempt target is certain kinds of behaviour, certain kind of practices, rather than certain human beings, right, mm. then, it, then that might give you some kind of traction, I suppose. So this
1: plays out, like, as we speak, it plays out. Like, mm. I, um, this is one of the several tensions that seems to exist between the old warriors of the civil rights movement. I don't know, we're always talking about African-American politics mm. for some reason. I don't know why we're fixated on this. But anyway, um, the divide between people, veterans of the civil rights movement and the engine of the Black, Ra- mm. the Black Lives Matter movement, mm. right, this idea that, you know, that these civil rights veterans, they say, well, we were anchored in the church, we believed white people were our brothers and sisters and we addressed them as such, even as we took very steely action against them were prepared to sacrifice a lot. That was an important kind of civic bond. Now, I don't know what conversations were happening internally within the civil rights, whether they spoke that way internally or that was just for, for public consumption. But you see the philosophical divide here. And I suppose what I'm asking is, in your scheme, do you think that it's impossible to adopt this thing where you are very much on guard about the excesses of pride or some version of pride that will in the long run become oppressive while still making all of the necessary claims that need to be made? Or is this something that you see as a necessary Approach.
2: I think some element of this can maybe might think of as elevated pride, I think is necessary. What kinds of expressions it ought to take, I think, is a much more difficult kind of question. But I'm thinking about something like uh, queer pride, not just as we are also human and we are equal, though I think that that's an element of it, but a real sense of like there's a culture here, there's a community, there's a way of being that that, um, members of that community might express as being better than. Um, And I guess that's part of what I'm saying is I don't necessarily think that's a problem, that we can take pride in this thing that we do that we think is really good and valuable and worthy. And, and, you know, those kind of boring people don't do it. Um, That kind of thing, I think, doesn't need to be pernicious. But that's very different from expressions of moral superiority in the sense of we think we have a kind of deeper moral worth or that that non-queer people are contemptuous or something like that. But that kind of community building, which I think can take the form not just of we two are equals, but there are elements of what we do and the way we are that are better, that strikes me as potentially being valuable and a valuable tool to counter the kind of... um, message that so many people get that they're inferior, of finding those things to take pride in in the way we are, um, to get to that point of then being able to kind of express this kind of fellowship and community and equality with those people who have previously been oppressed.
0: Susie, I, I think this is an incredibly important point that you've touched on. To some extent, it actually undercuts your argument and hands it a bit more cleanly to Walid because, because in, in, in some ways part of the criticism is that there is a form of dominant culture that is, as such, because of its historical record and because of the proceeds of that historical record, is morally bankrupt. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not putting too fine a point on it to say that that is very much the critique that is leveled at, say, white, hetero, dominant Western culture. That this is something that is now reaping the benefits of massively ill-gotten gains over an astonishingly brutal period of time. And so that there is a kind of cultural evaluation that's happening there. So if if we understand pride as being something that is relative to others, but it's also pegged against something like common value, something like a, an understanding of what is appropriate for a political or for a moral community, uh, the values that are appropriate to them, then by denying the other side moral legitimacy as such because of the moral legacy of the dominant culture to which they are a part, I mean, th- there is a kind of zero-sum claim in that that is that is potentially problematic because it breaks down, I think, it, it reduces to nothing, the very possibility for there to be communication between these two moral universes. But then you think about someone like James Baldwin. I'm sorry for keep coming back to him, but you know he he went through a period of intense contemptuousness uh, of the order of someone like Elijah Muhammad, for instance, for white people. But then he arrived at the point where his fundamental claim wasn't that the moral universe in which that you inhabit, white people is bankrupt, it's rotten to its very core. Instead, he said, if we can agree on a fundamental point, you white brothers have been killing your brothers who are black, and you know full well that they are your brothers, and that is your crime. There's something about that moving from contempt or moving from that overweening pride to creating the fundamental basis upon which we can recognize one another, creating those necessary points of moral connection where these two universes overlap instead of insisting on the zero-sum game. That, I think, I mean, how pride serves that or undercuts it, that's a very, very delicate question. But sometimes you do need to first accentuate the contrast and then desperately find that one point where you can say, surely we can stand in moral judgment over one another on this point of all points.
2: Yeah, so I think what's really crucial there is this idea that um, whatever form our pride takes, it shouldn't take the form of seeing other people as in some sense outside the moral universe, as somehow Mm. kind of in some sense beyond contempt or beneath contempt, Mm. right? That kind of move, I think, is incredibly dangerous. But I do think that there is a kind of space for a kind of pride that doesn't get to that point, right? Of saying that the things that that your community has done really are contemptuous, but you, person within that community, are still um, a moral being who I'm going to hold, in a sense, to moral account. Um, And there's, in a sense, a, a... a, a, an attempt at rede- or a request for redemption here, right, of a you will be, again, my equal in an evaluative sense if you stop doing these things or collectively if you all stop doing these things. So it's not a kind of um, once and for all we're better than you but it's just a notice that what you've done is wrong in the scheme of things and so you have to, in a sense, earn your place back in this evaluative kind of schema. Um, that's a very different kind of move, I think, from the you know, kind of trying to isolate the community off and saying we're better than everybody else and those people are are beneath contempt and we don't have to worry about them. Um, I agree that's a potentially very dangerous kind of path to go down. But a really attractive one. It can be attractive. attractive. I think so as well. And I think um, you know, I want to recognise my own position as a, you know, cis white woman who, who, middle class as well. Um, I don't really know what it's like to be at the receiving end of of, um, bad forms of oppression and I think asking people in those communities people who are vulnerable and have been subject um, to abuses of power, asking them to kind of, as a first step, notice, you know, to treat and talk to um, their oppressors as equals might just be asking too much, right? And so I think a kind of acknowledgement of, even if we don't think it's a, an ideal end point, an acknowledgement that this community building, um, self-worth building, collective worth building process might look ugly at times, but it might also be necessary and something that we need to kind of create space for, it, while keeping an eye on the fact that it could potentially take these kind of turns um, in the long run.
1: We're out of time, but uh, can I just clarify one thing? Because I, I spoke about the Malcolm X example as though Muhammad Ali hadn't been through a similar mm. transition in his own right, which of course he has, and I'm aware of that. I was kind of trying to talk about the concept rather than get into the biographies of everybody. But um, just I, in before, I thought that was beautifully deftly done, Willie. That was well, fine. Thank you. But yeah, I just wanted to get in before you get letters, because I work to him, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Jeez, I've talked myself into a hole. here. Um, either way, we are
0: out of time, Susie. Thank Your expertise has been invaluable. So thank you very much for helping. Thanks for us. having me. <laughs> So there you have it, Waleed, we did pride. And I think anybody who is theologically literate in any way knows that we did pride first because pride is commonly regarded across several different religious and moral traditions as being at the root, at the base, at the heart of pretty much every vice that follows.
1: Mm, yeah, it is, you're right. That is why we did it, I think. That's why it unfolded the way it did. But I think there are certain things in that episode- that I would love to have another go at now. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like a lot of things unfolded throughout the year that maybe just personally clarified my own perspective on certain things. Ah. Areas that we decided not to go in that show because we weren't exactly sure what we thought about it. And now I reckon I've got a stronger idea. But maybe everyone has been saved from my certitude on this because it could well be that I am certain of the wrong things at the moment.
0: That seems to be a theme for 2020. I'll give you that. Um, What are we doing next week? Well, I don't care. You know what I want to do now? I want to get our audience to write in and tell us what topics, what episodes would you like us to revisit, and to say the ways that we've changed our mind. That would be both humiliating <laughs> and invigorating, but I think it'd be a lot of fun. It yes, could be a lot of fun. Next week we are doing another ordinary vice as a way of kind of kicking off our best of summer series. Uh, If pride is at the heart, at the root of so many vices, which I'm not too sure about, but anyway, we'll go with that as a kind of convenient fiction, then I think the one we're doing next week is the most pervasive of all of the modern vices. Next week, we're looking at impatience. That's it. I know. That's it. Even I'm looking forward to that one. (laughs) I can can hardly wait to discuss impatience. I can't wait to hear what we say. (laughs)